And this beautiful moment happens where first Tom Stafford floats through, takes Leonor's hand, and he says, glad to see you in Russian. And in English, Leonor says, very, very happy to see you. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. On the 17th of July 1975, the first manned international space mission was carried out jointly by the United States and the Soviet Union. Millions of people around the world watched on television as a United States Apollo module docked with a Soviet Union Soyuz capsule. The project and its memorable handshake in the heavens was a symbol of détente between the two superpowers during the Cold War, and it is generally believed to mark the end of the space race. Unthinkable only years earlier, the Apollo-Soyuz mission was made possible by the thaw in Soviet-US relations. According to Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, the Soviet and American spacemen will go up into outer space for the first major joint scientific experiment in the history of mankind. They know that from outer space, our planet looks even more beautiful. It is big enough for us to live peacefully on it but it is too small to be threatened by nuclear war. Our guest is Cold War Conversation's favourite author, Stephen Walker, who has written Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. There's a link to Stephen's book and two previous episodes with Stephen in the episode notes. I'm asking listeners to support my work and enable me to continue recording these incredible stories. And if you become a monthly supporter via Patreon, you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome back Stephen Walker, to our Cold War conversation. In 1975, it's the summer, it is July the 17th. And at exactly 11.09 Houston time, 230 kilometers or 142 miles above the Atlantic Ocean, two spacecraft dock. Nothing unusual there. Spacecraft have been docking since 1966. But what makes this extraordinary, unusual, and at that point unique is that one of those spacecraft is American and the other one is Soviet. And they dock at 11.09 and they are watched by a global audience of hundreds of millions of television viewers. This is all being broadcast to the ground live. And people watch spellbound as these two joined ships from opposite sides of the Iron Curtain in the middle of the Cold War orbit the Earth. And after two further orbits of the Earth, 
somewhere over the northern French city of Metz. It was actually going to be above Bogner Regis, can you believe this? But in fact, it turned out to be Metz because of a couple of delays that took place. The hatches between the spacecraft are opened. And there is this wonderful moment where the American commander, a man called Tom Stafford, reaches out and shakes the hand of the commander of the Soviet spacecraft, a man called Alexei Leonov. And they reach and they shake hands. And in that symbolic handshake between these two spacecraft, high above the world, high above frontiers and disputes and borders and all the kind of mess of a world so divided, there is this extraordinary handshake in the heavens. It really is an absolutely extraordinary moment in the Cold War. And it is watched by a global audience who after years, in fact, decades of mistrust between the superpowers on both sides of the Iron Curtain, are looking at this moment as a symbolic gesture that suggests the possibility, at least, that the world could be a better place and that what unites us is our humanity. And this moment is the Apollo Soyuz handshake and what we're going to be talking about today. It is an extraordinary technological moment. It is a huge political moment. It is a great human moment. And it's just the most wonderful mission that really many people don't know very much about. You're you're absolutely correct. And it's incredible that this happens because in view of the previous rivalry that we've spoken about, um, what what was the motivation for both parties to undertake this mission? Well, interestingly enough, there had been attempts to kind of reach across between the two sides, little kind of flickering beacons of light way back into the 1960s at the height of the space race. But they really got nowhere because the mistrust between the two sides was enormous. And the theme of that time was not so much, well, it was not at all really cooperation. It was competition. It was all about space races, the race to put the first satellite in space, the race to put the first human in space, which I describe in detail in my recent book, Beyond, and also the race to put the first human being on the moon. It's all about races. And the rivalry is intense. And one has to understand that this is a time when the idea of being first in space, whatever that first happened to be, is somehow connected in people's minds with the idea of being first militarily. There is that connection between the two. And so what you have is an atmosphere in the Cold War of distrust, of mistrust, of no connection, despite these very occasional beacons. And I should actually say, really interestingly, that Kennedy himself, in his inauguration speech in 1961, actually does say something about, he makes this offer to the Soviet Union, he doesn't actually describe it as the Soviet Union, but it's obvious that's what he means, to actually come together and form some sort of joint space venture. There is this offer that goes out there, which he repeats again as late as 1963 to the United Nations. There is this kind of feeling. I think Kennedy himself was just appalled by the size of the budget that was going to be required to put an American on the moon. And I think that was a practical side to it. But none of this actually goes anywhere. It all falls on deaf ears. The Vietnam War is building through the 1960s. 
The missile race is really building through the 1960s. The world is perched on the edge of, I mean, potential destruction. You know, I mean, it really is that. There are thousands of missiles on both sides. And then we get to 1970, and things are starting to thaw. The Vietnam War is beginning very slowly to wind down. And President Nixon, who had become president in 1969, is himself putting out feelers to the Soviets to look for ways to kind of limit the number of nuclear missiles in the world. And he's looking for the possibility of detente. And in that time, what starts to happen, in that winding down of all of that tension, what starts to happen is that NASA, in a sense, with Nixon's blessing, actually begins to send out more feelers. And this time, the feelers are coming back and signals start to happen between across the Iron Curtain between the architects of the space programs on both sides. And something really incredible happens. In late 1970, a man called Bob Gilruth, who features quite prominently in my book, actually, because he's the guy that runs the Mercury program, the first American space astronaut program in the late 1950s and early 1960s. By this time, he's the director of the Manned Spacecraft Center at NASA. And this guy, Gilruth, who's actually an engineer as well as a sort of uh, a bureaucrat and a NASA politician, effectively, actually is invited to go with a bunch of engineers to Moscow. I mean, you cannot imagine how extraordinary this is at that time. I mean, this is entering another planet. They fly to Moscow and they find themselves actually welcomed with open arms. And the Soviets invite them into places that were previously top secret, places that they couldn't even have imagined going to, like, for example, the Cosmonaut Training Center at a place called Star City, north of Moscow, which was a completely kind of hermetically sealed place where no Westerner was ever allowed to go. Suddenly, Gilruth and his bunch of engineers are allowed inside, and they're allowed to see the Soyuz spacecraft simulators. And they even get inside one of the simulators and are amazed at just how primitive they actually are compared to the American side. And they are invited to the opera and they have meetings with all these engineers on the other side. And even though there's a language barrier, what starts to happen is connection. They start to realize they're talking the same kind of language and they come up with this idea to have some sort of joint space venture. And they're going to make this happen in the next few years, where somehow the Soviet and the American space programs are going to come together and do something remarkable, something extraordinary. And this is the first step across the Iron Curtain, which leads eventually to the Apollo Soyuz in 1975. I mean, it is an incredible thing. You, you have to realize that we, it's like stepping into North Korea, you know? I mean, it is, it was bewildering for these Americans to find themselves there. There's a wonderful moment where Bob Gilruth describes walking around Moscow and they're shown the Soviet cosmonaut space monument, this extraordinary monument that was built after Yuri Gagarin's groundbreaking flight in 1961. And it's there with this kind of eerie mist surrounding it in the center of Moscow. And there is something almost sinister about what they're seeing, and yet terribly exciting for the first time for them to see this. 
So this is the beginning. The Soviets then start to send a 19-man delegation to Houston, and they have a similar experience in reverse. Suddenly, they're going to uh, they're, they're faced with credit cards or sales tax, which they don't understand, you know. And all these discussions about docking procedures are kind of interspersed with trips to supermarkets or trips to department stores to buy trainers. So there's this incredible beginning of a sort of thaw that starts with the engineers, but at the same time is underpinned by a change in the political landscape as well. Somewhere around this period in 1972, President Nixon makes this extraordinary trip to Moscow. It's the first time an American president has ever been in Moscow, ever. And he goes to Moscow to sign the first strategic arms limitation treaty, the SALT treaty, the first one with Brezhnev. And in that meeting, they formally underpin these two leaders of the two superpowers, this idea of a joint space venture. The Vietnam War is really winding down. The amount of military involvement by the Americans really changes after 1973. The climate suddenly seems right. There is a thaw in the Cold War. There is a moment where this distrust might be dissipating, might even begin to be eroding. And in that window, the Apollo-Soyuz project really starts to accelerate. And it, it, it's interesting because I've I've read that Brezhnev wasn't a huge fan of the of the space program, and I think Nixon was was worried about spend on it. So was the the aim of the, the this mission to be symbolic, or were there some scientific elements to it as well? It's very interesting you should say that. You're absolutely right about Brezhnev. Brezhnev was a big guy on nuclear missiles. That's what he loved. He loved missiles, you know. And actually, back in the day when Gagarin was flying in space and when there was a real push for human being, the first human beings to go into space, the first Soviet cosmonauts were going to go into space, there was, I mean, Brezhnev was one of the arch opponents uh, of this. I mean, he just thought it was wasting time on kind of pointless space ventures when what we really should be building are more and more and developing are more and more and bigger nuclear missiles. But the political climate was changing by this point. I mean, what was felt was not just that this could have some incredibly powerful symbolic sort of ex- sort of a symbolic expression, a symbolic gesture that could be more than just a gesture. It might actually be something that is a harbinger of peace or peace to come, that somehow the confrontation that was so dangerous between the two superpowers could actually, in some respect, reduced by this. But there were practical technological things to be gained from it as well. Interestingly, one of them was rescue. There was a real feeling that there could, by, by somehow developing the technology required for a spacecraft on the Soviet side to dock with a spacecraft on the American side, because they had completely different docking procedures and docking technology. But to find ways in which that could be changed and they could actually dock would mean that there was a possibility of rescue if a spacecraft from one superpower became stranded in space or something went critically wrong. So a key element to this, actually, a key driver to this was actually the business of rescue. What would happen in an emergency? So that was part of it. But if one was to say that was all of it, that would be quite wrong. 
everybody had their motivations. NASA had reached a point where the lunar program was sort of, you know, ending. Um, the last mission to the moon was in 1972, Apollo 17. Three further Apollo missions, 18, 19, and 20, had all been cancelled. The public were fed up. They were bored with watching. They were actually bored with watching astronauts keep flying successfully to the moon and do things like, you know, play golf on the moon, as Alan Shepard memorably did with Apollo 14. You know, they were kind of, it's becoming gimmicky. There was no real point to it. How many moon rocks were you going to keep bringing back? So what this did for people in NASA was give NASA a purpose it meant that there was something they could actually do that was big, that was symbolic, that would actually reach and touch people that had a wow factor, if you like. So it gave NASA a purpose it was desperately looking for. When the moon program, which had really driven it through the 1960s, was beginning to wind down and people were becoming less interested. So there were, there were, there were motivations at all levels. There was a political motivation, which was underpinned by these salt talks, these strategic arms invitation talks happening between the superpower leaders. There were technological reasons which were lying behind it to do with the possibility of space rescue when there was an emergency. There was a purpose issue for NASA. What do we do now? What are we even for? And all of these drivers start to come together at the same time in a kind of happy continuity. And as a result, we drive towards the mission in 1975. It's really interesting you mentioned rescue there because there was a film that came out in 1969, I think, called Marooned. Yes. Which was a US film about a US crew getting trapped in space. And I think a a Soviet spaceship comes to rescue them at some point. Yes, and I actually think, if I remember rightly, and I don't really know the details of this, it's actually based on an original Soviet movie <laughs> that, that plays up the idea of a Soviet mission that comes to rescue an American spacecraft. And in fact, the American movie was based on the original Soviet movie, as far as I remember. So this was in the ether. This was really there in the ether. I mean, there's nothing very dramatic about that. But as things stood, there was no way such a space, there was no way such a space rescue could possibly be affected um, unless the technology existed to connect. And so the challenge that these engineers had when they started these meetings in 1970 and then continued them with the blessings of their leaders, essentially, Nixon on the one side in America and also obviously Brezhnev in the USSR, they were facing seriously major technological challenges. One, how do you dock two spacecraft from two completely different space systems, effectively? You know, how do you do this? How do you make that actually work and do it in a way that's going to be safe and efficient and perhaps also a model of future dockings to come. A second problem was to do with the pressurization. Each of the capsules were pressurized completely differently. The Americans had a cabin pressure which was much lower than the Soviet capsules. There was no way you could just open the door and move from one to the other because you would get some kind of explosive decompression if you tried to do that. So what they did was they developed an airlock. And the airlock and the docking adapter became one and the same thing. It was an extraordinary thing that was stuck on the end, essentially, of a standard Apollo command module. And it was the airlock that would enable the American team to get into the Russian or the Soviet spaceship 
and vice versa. But there were bigger problems even than that. And the biggest of all really was language. I mean, you're talking about Russian and English. And it was an incredibly difficult thing. So what they had to do was develop various kinds of language programs. The Americans had to learn Russian, the Russians had to learn English. And it was decided the way they would do this was they would have the Americans speaking Russian and the Russians speaking English. And there's a wonderful moment when one of the uh, Soviet cosmonauts, a man called Alexei Leonov, who we should talk about in a moment, actually said, well, we didn't have two languages. We had three languages. We had American English, we had Russian, and we had the language of the American commander, Tom Stafford, who was from Oklahoma and had a very American Oklahoma drawl, which he called Oklahomsky. So there were three languages they had to speak. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I love those, I love those sort of um, details there. <laughs> it became kind of embarrassingly obvious that the Americans were technologically far ahead it just became kind of obvious. You know, let's face it, the Americans have gone to the moon and the nearest the Russians have got to the moon were with probes. Uh, they did have one probe in 1968, which contained two tortoises, actually, that went all the way around the moon two months before Apollo 8 did the same thing. But they really did not have the same level of technological development in space as the Americans. That became embarrassingly clear. And so kind of diplomatically, it became clear that the Americans were going to have to manufacture this docking module, this uh, adapter, if you say, that would actually be able to connect the two spacecraft. And the man that was actually chosen and selected, is quite moving this, to uh, effectively to fly the rendezvous, to fly the docking procedure, was a wonderful astronaut called Deke Slayton. And there's a rather, rather wonderful story to do with Deke Slayton, because he was the oldest by far of the five men involved in this mission, two Soviets and three American astronauts. He was already, I think, 51 years old at the time of the mission in 1975. But he had been one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts selected in 1958 to fly the first Americans in space. And he had, in fact, been selected to fly the second American orbital mission after the famous one of John Glenn's in February 1962. But he was grounded. He had a medical condition that was diagnosed of a sort of irregular heart rhythm, atrial fibrillation, I think it's called, and his flight status was stopped immediately. And it stayed stopped for the next 10 years. In that time, he became the director of flight crew operations. He became the man essentially responsible for choosing which crews would fly on which missions. But he had to watch flight after flight after flight in space while he was staying on the ground. But in 1972, after another medical examination, his flight status was restored. And he was desperate, even though he was getting on a bit, to get back into space. So when he heard about this project that there would be an Apollo and a Soyuz capsule joining in space at some point in the mid-1970s, he began learning Russian. He began learning Russian. He gave up his cigars. He gave up. He started jogging. He changed his diet. He went to the gym. He did everything he possibly could. And there's this wonderful moment in 1973 when he, along with his other two crew members, Tom Stafford and Vance Brown, 
was selected for this mission. This would be his first and only space mission. And it was an incredible thing after years and years and years in the cold that he would now suddenly get to fly in space. And his role was to do the docking. His official, I think, title was command docking pilot. That's really what he was. And so his job would be the critical one of actually mating the Apollo Command Service module, as it was called, to the Soyuz capsule so that the teams would then be able to enter each other's spacecraft. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War Uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And what, what about the, the rest of the crews? Can we just talk about who, who else was involved in this? Yes, of course. So on the American side, we had the commander, a man called Tom Stafford, the one who talks about, um, you know, the one who had the, had the Oklahomsky <laughs> version of Russian. Um, he's an extraordinary guy in himself. He had been on three previous missions, two Gemini missions. This was the intermediate spacecraft program between the Mercury program, which first put Americans in space, and the Apollo program, which obviously was moving towards putting them on the moon. So he flew two of those and was very experienced in kind of docking procedures, because that's one of the key elements of the Gemini program. He'd also gone to the moon in Apollo 10, the one before the big 11. And he'd gone in May 1969, and he had commanded the lunar module and taken it right down to within nine miles of the lunar surface. Can you imagine? It was so close, you could almost touch it. But the actual landing was Apollo 11 in July with Neil Armstrong. So he had been he was an experienced pilot. He was an experienced commander. He was the right guy for this mission. The third member of the team, of the American team, was a chap called Vance Brand, who I just mentioned earlier. Now, he had never flown in space at that point, um, but he was to go on afterwards to actually command, I think, three space shuttle missions. In fact, the space shuttles that he commanded were both ones that were destroyed, one in the terrible Challenger accident of 1986, and then subsequently the Columbia accident or destruction of 2003. Those were the two space shuttles he later commanded. But this, in 1975, was his first mission. And he was the command module pilot. So Stafford was the commander, Brand is the command module pilot, and Deke Slayton, we've talked about, is the guy that's in charge of the docking. On the Soviet side... There are only two men inside, and I'll explain why in just a moment. It's an extraordinary story. The commander is a guy called Alexei Leonov. I actually interviewed Leonov in a hotel room in Cologne very shortly before he died quite recently, um, and he features quite a bit actually in my book. He was one of the very first of the cosmonaut selection, the original 20 cosmonauts that were selected in 1959 
to be the first humans to fly in space. He was a great friend of Yuri Gagarin's, actually. Um, Siberian. His father had been arrested under Stalin. I mean, he, he went through all of that as a child. But he was famous because in 1965, he performed the first spacewalk ever. And it was an extraordinary moment when he steps outside his Voskhod spacecraft and into the ether. And it was a mission that was almost disastrous because even though it was incredible, an amazing moment for him to see, you know, the earth beneath his feet, there was a terrible moment where he couldn't get back inside his spacecraft because his spacesuit began to balloon in the vacuum of space and he could not squeeze back inside. And there was a terrible moment where he thought, this was it, I'm going to die in space. But what happened was he took the autonomous decision without telling the ground of releasing, it was very dangerous this, of releasing some air from inside his spacesuit into the vacuum of space, which would bring the spacesuit down to a size which allowed him to just about squeeze back inside his spacecraft. So this is Leonov, a man who had flirted with danger. Now, what makes him extraordinary is that he had also been selected as the man that would be the first Soviet to walk on the moon. Um, Because, of course, the Soviets had their own lunar program, which maybe we'll talk about another time. And Leonov was going to be that guy. But, of course, he didn't become that guy. And he had to sit and watch Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin do it in July 1969. He has another very extraordinary facet to him, which was this. He was selected along with the other guy, a man called Valery Kubasov, who was also the second of the Soviet cosmonauts in the Soyuz capsule for this mission we're talking about. These two men had kind of nine lives because they were also selected in 1971 to fly on a mission called Soyuz 11. And this mission went horrifically wrong because what happened was a ventilation, basically a cabin pressure relief valve that was supposed to open in the very last stages of descent as the capsule was parachuting back to the ground, popped open at an altitude of 104 miles. And the three men who were not wearing spacesuits inside this capsule were instantly asphyxiated in the unbelievably rapid decompression that followed. They landed perfectly. And when the search and rescue teams arrived to open the hatch, they saw these three men sitting strapped perfectly comfortably to their seats with blue faces, and they were dead. Now, that was Leonov's mission with Kubasov. But Kubasov developed tuberculosis just before the mission. So they were taken off the mission. And three cosmonauts went instead, and those were the three that died. So when Apollo Soyuz came up for 1975, Leonov took with him his lucky charm cosmonaut, Kubasov, this guy that would go with him in space and be there for this encounter with the Americans. So this is the team. These are the five men that went up there. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's incredible story with with those two. And why was the Soyuz capsule just a two-man capsule? Very interesting question. So it had been designed as a three-man capsule, but there wasn't enough room in that version of the Soyuz to have spacesuits. So once this terrible tragedy had taken place and these three men had actually died, 
um, in you know in horrific circumstances. Can you imagine just opening the hatch and there they are sitting there and they've got blue faces and blue hands and they're dead. I think one of them was still quite warm actually, and somebody tried to give them you know mouth to mouth, but it was it was impossible. They probably died within about ten to fifteen seconds actually in the spacecraft as it was plummeting back to Earth. But after that, it was decided you can't have three; you've got to have two. I mean, now they do have three in Soyuz capsules, but at the time they brought them down to two so that there will be room to wear spacesuits. And that's why that happened for this particular Soyuz mission. Interestingly enough, Tom Stafford, the guy we taught, the Oklahomsky guy that we talked about, who was the commander of the American mission, interestingly, he was a pallbearer at the funerals of those three cosmonauts in Moscow in 1971. And Leonov, the commander of the Soviet capsule, so his opposite number, that's actually where they first encountered each other. And Leonov describes in his own book, Two Sides of the Moon, how moved he was that Stafford was there in Moscow representing NASA and a pallbearer at the funeral. So there was already, as I was saying in the early 70s, that connection. But he was also very moved by Stafford's emotion, really, because in the end, space is space, whether you're Soviet or American or whatever. And it's a very, very dangerous place. And so there was that common sense of danger. And that's another of the reasons why these teams felt so close and were able to communicate and be so connected. That's incredible, that that camaraderie. I hadn't realised that uh, Stafford had actually attended that funeral and been a pallbearer. So that, that's, again, a very symbolic action. They started the training in 1973. They went, I think, four times the Russians went to America. I think three times the Americans went to Russia. And it's incredible how much they were shown, these Americans. I mean, it was absolutely incredible that they were allowed to go to Star City and they obviously worked in all the procedures systems and the simulators they were talking in Russian. They were drinking lots of vodka. There's a wonderful moment when um, they talk about, you know, eating raw sturgeon for breakfast as opposed to bacon and eggs. And there's massive amounts of a drinking going on. They, you know, obviously they feel their rooms are all bugged, which they probably were. But there's an incredible connection between them. Vance Brand is nicknamed Vanya. You know, they're, they're, they, they become they become brothers, really. Um, and in, I think April, May 1975, so really just before the mission, these Americans, principally R3, but also the backup teams as well, are introduced for the very first time to Baikonur, which is, of course, what was once the top secret cosmodrome from where all these missions had been launched. And it was also the big Russian or Soviet nuclear missile site at the time. And they go to Baikonur, they see it for the first time, and they're absolutely blown away by it. They're blown away by the size of it. I mean, this is a place that is probably a hundred times the size of Cape Canaveral. Can you imagine? And they arrive there and it's just, wow, this extraordinary place. I mean, it's been so secret, hidden behind the Iron Curtain in Kazakhstan, which was then, of course, a Soviet republic. But likewise, the Soviet cosmonaut teams come over to Houston and they are also amazed by what they see. There are barbecues with the cosmonauts. There's a wonderful moment when Leonov does a stopover for the first time in 1973 in New York City and he looks at the Empire State Building. It's like, gosh, you know, he's struck by the, the sound of the city. He talks about the sirens, the noise, the traffic and the cars, which are so huge. 
um, compared to this little bashed up vulgar car that he has to drive, you know, and he looks at the homes that the American astronauts live in, in the salubrious suburbs of Houston and compares them with the sort of communal apartment blocks that they live in in Star City. They even go to Disneyland, you know, I mean, it's just incredible. So you get this amazing kind of connection between these two sides and that's real. And it was also not just the cosmonauts because behind them, you've got the engineers as well. There are people from Mission Control in Houston who go to Mission Control in Kaliningrad near Moscow, and you get engineers on both sides because they've got to track the spacecraft when it's up there. They've got to follow it. How does that work? There are communications procedures, engineering challenges that have to be sort of faced. So all of these things, it's not just the apex of the cosmonauts and the astronauts, but behind them, you've got these teams. So there is something very extraordinary happening. This is a this is all happening against that backdrop of SALT talks, of strategic arms limitation talks and anti-ballistic missile talks and agreements that are being signed and the end of the Vietnam War. And what you're getting is a, an apparent shifting of political tectonic plates. That's really what's happening, of which this is the most visceral and visual expression culminating in that flight. So it really is, it's much more than just technology and a, and a wow moment. It is actually an apparent shifting of the political landscape that is happening in those years. Uh, a moment of light, a moment of apparent thaw, which is really incredibly moving from this distance looking back to witness. Indeed, indeed. And what was the US domestic reaction like to this planned mission? Well, for the most part, I mean, of course, there is a long-standing history of, you know, anti-communism, which goes right back to McCarthy and so on, and of competition with the Soviets. But you have to also understand, this is an era where the Vietnam War had been going on too long. And, you know, people were sick and tired of seeing people die, Americans and Vietnamese dying on their television screens night after night, and American soldiers coming back in body bags, and the whole nightmare of those years. And there was a real sense, I, th I think there was a sort of, I mean, it's difficult to generalize about this, but if you read newspaper headlines at that time, you feel a sense, you feel some of that thought, you feel a sense of they're sick and tired of it you know, maybe there is some way in which we can reach out and extend the hand of peace on the ground by symbolically extending that hand of peace in orbit, in space, in the sky, if you like. Um, so you do actually feel that building through that period. And, you know, we're talking about a very, I remember myself as, a, as growing up as a child at that time, it, it, you know, one felt on the edge of, on the brink of potential nuclear disaster. So when these talks are starting to happen. And then something like Apollo Soyuz happens. It, it feels like a beacon. It's easy to be cynical about that, but it feels like a beacon. It really does. And although the Soviet press is obviously highly controlled, because it's highly controlled, because this is actually a mission that has the blessing, obviously, of the Soviet authorities, and most of all of Brezhnev at the top, the Soviet side is, is clearly pushing for it and clearly suggesting this is a very good thing as well, because again, it helps the talks that are taking place at high levels on issues to do with nuclear missiles and biological warfare and all of that stuff that was happening at the time. And so you get all of these people coming together 
And there is this real sense of optimism in the air. And then it reaches this extraordinary moment on the 15th of July, 1975, when we start the mission. But how did the Soviet press sort of portray this collaboration with the um, capitalists? I think that a lot of that, from the bits that I've seen in Pravda and Izvestia, is that a lot of that is played down for the purposes of this mission, because in a way that becomes a contradictory statement. What does come across beforehand, and also actually particularly afterwards, is the classic Russian inferiority complex problem. It is perfectly clear, as I said earlier on, that the Americans have the technological lead over the Soviets in this. But that is downplayed. And there is very much a sense on the Soviet side, the way it's portrayed, that we, the Soviets, are helping the Americans to achieve this mission. There's very much that that's in play. So you get these two sides which are quite different. On the American side, it's very much we are, the, you know, we're building this adapter, we're building this airlock. You know, it couldn't happen without us. We are the technological leaders in this. But that is very much downplayed on the Soviet side. It is very much we are leading this and the Americans are helping us because to express, they're already smarting, let's face it, from the fact that the Americans had got to the moon in 1969 and, you know, the Soviets had got two tortoises around it. So they're already <laughs> smarting from that. So really, to, you cannot, they wouldn't, there was no way they could push that point even further. There has to be. It's Russian. It's very understandable. It's the it's the thing that animates the space race right from the beginning. It is a feeling of inferiority compared to the technological prowess, power, wealth, and might of the West, and a really deep feeling of Russian pride. It's a kind of mixture of pride and insecurity, and that plays itself out as well. They're sort of helping us. You know, they need us to achieve this, and that's sort of how it was being played both before and also immediately after the mission in the Soviet-controlled press. Right, right. And but did they do any test flights beforehand? No test flights, an enormous number of absolutely controlled simulations were taking place. There were simulators, obviously, in Star City, and there were simulators, procedures trainers, they call them, um, in the United States as well. And those were also being used extensively backwards and forwards. So they were really training on how this stuff was actually going to work. They worked very, very closely together, um, you know, and the Soviets were put through all of the acceleration runs into the procedures trainers. They got acquainted with what the Apollo command module looked like. Obviously, the whole business of the airlock was extremely important. That was all part of the training. So there was all of this. What was interesting, though, I love this, is that the one of the things that the Soviets found remarkable was how little exercise the American astronauts are being asked to do. Basically, none. If you look at the Soviet space program, it's something I talk about in Beyond. It is all about physical perfection. It is all about squatting and running and jumping and jogging and trampolining. In fact, there's a wonderful quote somewhere in the book where one of the architects of the training program in the Soviet Union talks about how well the cosmonauts are trampolining, which is something which would be unthinkable if you think about Neil Armstrong, you know, how good a trampolinist had he become. It's completely crazy. But the Soviet teams were really obliged to do that. It was a very strict, formalized regime, a schedule. Every single day that they worked, the Americans didn't have anything. 
They did it if they wanted to do it. And the Soviet couldn't believe it, these cosmonauts, and they didn't have to exercise. And also, they didn't have to watch their diet. They could eat whatever they liked. Nobody seemed to be telling them, as the Soviet cosmonauts were being told by their instructors all the time, what they should be eating. So what they're looking at is in quite fundamental ways, a difference of culture, a difference of tradition, a difference, of course, of political ideology as well. The Americans were really struck, as I think I mentioned earlier, but the, this also applied to the American astronauts when they went to Star City to work on their simulators. They called them procedures trainers in America, but the simulators, the spacecraft simulators, at just how primitive they were inside, how few dials there were, how few levers there were, how little there was actually to do. And this, again, is something I talked about and beyond, and it still survived into the 1970s, reflects essentially an ideological difference between the USSR and America. Because on the one side in the Soviet Union, it was all about doing very little. You do not command your vessel. The vessel is essentially commanded by automated systems or it is commanded from the ground, essentially. And that's a little bit crude, but essentially. Whereas in the United States, the NASA astronauts are very much pilots. They are commanders or captains of their vessels. And they have an array of instrumentation and levers and dials and switches and goodness knows what to enable them to control their spacecraft. And in a way, that reflects very fundamental ideological differences between the two, between freedom of action and independence on the one side and doing what you're told and being part of the collective on the other. And this was something that amazed the American astronauts when they were working on these simulators in Russia with the Soviet astronauts, or cosmonauts. Yeah, no, it's in- incredible that that difference in, in ways of life between um, the, the two sets of astronauts. Now, let's talk about how the mission goes. Yes. Well, the mission starts on the 15th of July, 1975. And it starts actually with a launch from Baikonur, this this once secret, enormous Soviet cosmodrome of a Soyuz U rocket, on top of which is this Soyuz capsule with these two men, Alexei Leonov and Valery Kubasov inside. And there is a launch that takes place, which is extraordinary because it is televised. This is the first televised images of a Soviet launch ever up to that time. I mean, it is, again, part of the opening of the curtain, part of the lifting of the iron curtain, if you like, that this could actually be watched, which was incredible. For you have to put yourself back in that time. Every single launch from this once top, top secret, very recently once top secret cosmodrome was, was not televised. It may have been filmed, but whatever was shown to the public subsequently could be months later, sometimes years later. I mean, Gagarin's flight was filmed and uh, released as a film, as a feature film several months later, but there was almost nothing of the launch itself because these were secrets about these rockets that also doubled as intercontinental ballistic missiles that the Soviets didn't want to reveal, obviously, to the West. Now, for the first time, it's live. It's on TV. We can all watch it. And a global audience watches this as this rocket lifts into orbit. Precisely seven and a half hours later, an American Saturn 1B rocket 
with the three American astronauts we've talked about on board, lifts off from Cape Canaveral. So up they go, seven and a half hours between them. And for the next two days, these two, these two capsules are orbiting the Earth and they're getting closer and closer and closer. They're closing in on each other. And there is a wonderful moment when Alexei Leonov, the man we talked about, the commander of the Soviet vessel, spots the Apollo through his window approaching. And he describes it as a bright star. It was then a distance about 25 kilometers away. It's highly reflective surface, you know, gleams with all the brilliant, dazzling light of the sun. And this star approaches the Soviet spacecraft. And as it approaches, it resolves into the Apollo with its docking module on the front that we've spoken about. And as it gets even closer, and remember, they're both traveling, both these spacecraft, in order to retain orbital velocity, are traveling at nearly 18,000 miles an hour. You know, what at 10 times the speed of a rifle bullet. And through the window, Eleonov sees Stafford, Tom Stafford, the commander. So they see each other. It's an incredible moment. Deke Slayton, remember, he was the guy that was in charge of the docking, then takes over at this point, and he starts to approach the Soviet vehicle. And this is all being broadcast. There's a live TV camera that actually shows this docking. And it gets closer and closer. And at 11.09 a.m. Houston time, somewhere above the Atlantic, the two spacecraft lock together in a successful docking. And there's a wonderful moment when Leonov says over the radio, Apollo and Soyuz are shaking hands now, is what he says. And there they are, locked together in orbit. And they continue for another couple of orbits. And then comes the moment when the hatches are going to be opened into this specially designed airlock. Remember, the pressure systems, the pressure levels are different in both these capsules. So into this this airlock. And there's going to be this amazing moment when they're going to join. Again, it's going to be televised. And for one horrific moment before this happens, just before the Americans open their hatch, there is a smell of burning, like burning glue. And there is an awful moment when the American side think, my goodness, we're not, there's something's wrong and we're not going to be able to open this up. All this thing is set up. The whole world is watching. There's going to be this incredible moment when the cosmonauts and the astronauts are going to meet in space high above all the worry of the world. And maybe they won't be able to because they can't open the hatch because there's a problem. But fortunately, this smell of burning, it's like a burned glue smell, disappears and the hatches are opened at slightly separate times because of this airlock. And this beautiful moment happens where first Tom Stafford, who is the commander, floats through the, the hatch on the Sayers side and he takes Leonov's hand. I think Leonov even tries to give him a very Russian bear hug. And he says, glad to see you in Russian. And in English, Leonov says, very, very happy to see you. And they really are. There are photographs of this moment, which I, we really should put up on the website. We because will. they are fantastic. I mean, there is this elation, which is not faked. It is real. It is, my God, after two years of training, after 
what, five years of actually developing the technology for this. And after decades of enmity, there is this almost bear hug in the sky. And you see them together in this weightless, this zero-G environment. And it's an incredible moment. So Stafford then drifts into the Sires. Behind him is Deke Slayton, you know, with his first ride in space. And there, pinned to the wall of the Sires spacecraft, is a hand-lettered English sign which says, Welcome aboard, Sires. And they go in. And they're sitting in there. Vance Brand at this point is still back in the Apollo module. And they're sitting in there and there's a phone call from Brezhnev, the premier of the Soviet Union on the ground. And there's a phone call from President Ford. Nixon by this point had obviously gone from President Ford. And there's an exchange of gifts. There's an exchange of flags of each other's nations. And then they sit around this little kind of small table. And this is all being watched on television by, as I said, a global audience of probably hundreds of millions, and they have lunch. And before they have lunch, Leonor proposes a toast. And he picks up one of these, uh, you know, tubes of disgusting juices of one sort or another. It might be borscht or something. And he gives one or two, one each to the other two, the Americans. And they all raise their kind of tubes. But on the tubes, he peeled off the labels of what they actually were, borscht, tomato juice, grape juice, whatever it happened to be. And he'd stuck on vodka labels instead. So actually, for one moment, Tom Stafford was horrified because he thought that tens of millions of people were going to watch him drinking vodka. <laughs> in space. <laughs> uh. It's a wonderful moment. And Leonor says, no, 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 no. Just try it and you'll see. And he winks at Stafford, who he really adores. I mean, they really are very close. And he winks at Stafford and Stafford takes a swig of this stuff. And of course, it's not vodka. Rather disappointingly, it's actually beetroot juice or it's something else. That it, you know, it's not vodka. But there's this wonderful moment where they do that. And they then have this meal. And it, it is just a very beautiful connection. And it marks the start of several such encounters that continue over the next 47 hours. The Americans give the Soviets a tour of the command module, the Apollo. And again, there are other tours given of the Soyuz capsule. There's a joint space conference in one of the capsules as well, where they answer questions that people might have from the press for them. And there's a lot of stuff about detente and international cooperation. But really, what there is, is something incredibly sort of beautiful in that moment. And so these visits go on. I mean, I think they spend a total of 20 hours altogether visiting each other out of the 47 hours that they are docked. And it is watched by millions on television. And it really hits a nerve with the world. You know, it really does. And because people have a visceral, visual experience of connection. And the idea that somehow this is happening in space, divorced from all the kind of ghastly political mess, rivalry, mistrust, danger, all the rest of it that's enforced by all these borders, these iron curtains that exist below them. The fact this happens in that international, as it were, or non-national arena of space makes that connection even more powerful. 
But there is then a moment at the end where they undock, but they don't just undock permanently. They do a little bit of practice docking and undocking because that comes back to something you were saying and asking me about earlier on, which is, you know, is what is the point of all this from a technological point of view? Well, as I said, it's about rescue as well. So it's essential that this actually works properly. And while they're doing this docking and undocking, there's very nearly a complete disaster because there is this point where in one of these practice dockings and undockings, the docking module pilot, which, as I said, was Deke Slayton, accidentally pushes an attitude thruster, which changes the direction, if you like, of the spacecraft. And he very nearly collides into the Soyuz, which would have then turned it into a real emergency. And at that point, it would have actually been the case that the crew of the size would have had to come into the Apollo capsule and that would have been the only way they could have been rescued. So there really was an almost kind of dreadful irony about this. You know, they're going up there to practice emergencies, which very nearly becomes an actual emergency. Fortunately, at the last moment, that was stopped. It didn't happen. And then we get to the final undocking, which takes place after that 47 hours. And the Apollo moves or backs away from the Soyuz, and then it drops into a lower orbit. A lower orbit means it goes faster than a higher orbit. And as a result, it starts gradually to overtake the Soyuz now above it. And there's this lovely moment when the crew of the Apollo are listening on the radio to the Soyuz capsule, to the two men inside. And to their astonishment, they start hearing laughter and the sound of music, and women, and like there's a party taking place inside the Sayo's capsule. And they call and they say, what's going on? And Alexei Leonov says, oh, we're having a party. We've done our work now. We're just going to have some fun. Of course, it's all been recorded before. <laughs> it's like a nightclub in there. I love the sense of humour that these, these two crews have got, even with the seriousness of the dangers of the mission. Absolutely, absolutely. So what happened then was the two the two undock, and I think within a day or so on July the 21st, 1975, the Sayers capsule makes an absolutely trouble-free landing in the Central Asian steppe. I mean, Soviet, like today, Soviet spacecraft always land on terra firma. It was absolutely fine, and they and there was no problem at all with their descent and their landing. That was not the case with the Apollo, because the third problem, we had the hatch opening, glue smell, burn smell problem. You know, we had this, this problem with potentially crippling the Soyuz. The last problem was with the Apollo. The Apollo stayed in orbit for another couple of days, doing various tests and observations of one sort or another. And then on July the 24th, it returned to Earth. But something went wrong during the re-entry procedure. Something went wrong. And what seems to have happened is that two very key switches were left in the wrong position. I won't go through the technological details because I didn't really fully understand them myself. I know that as a result of these two switches being left in the wrong position, as the spacecraft was descending into the thicker, lower atmosphere by parachute at this point, so we're talking about the very last stage of descent to the Pacific Ocean. They were going to land about 500 miles or so to the west of Hawaii. As they're coming down, suddenly their capsule fills with a brownish gas. 
And the brownish gas gets thicker and thicker and they start coughing and then really coughing. And it turns out that what had happened was that because these two switches had been left in the wrong position, the spacecraft's attitude thrusters were venting oxidizer, which is part of their fuel, into the cockpit through the ventilation system. This oxidizer was made of nitrogen tetroxide, which is an incredibly, I mean, unbelievably corrosive and toxic gas. And the crew began to choke. And amazingly, they splashed down. They're still alive. The capsule flips upside down. So they're now hanging from their straps. At this point, Deke Slayton is really nauseous. He's going to be sick. But Vance Brand, who's closest to the ventilation point, has already passed out. And Stafford, who's furthest away from it, manages to grab oxygen masks and he shoves the oxygen mask on both of them and then one on himself, flips a lever which writes the spacecraft round and as quickly as he can ejects or unlocks the spacecraft hatch, which allows fresh air to flood into the spacecraft and basically saves their lives. So a really dangerous moment. The rescue teams arrive, they are taken out by helicopters in the standard way, but they have to go to hospital for two weeks for tests. And ironically, in the tests that they have in that two weeks in hospital, which are very, very thorough tests, because they've, you know, they've been ingesting this terrible gas, which could have killed them. There is this extraordinary and deeply sad and ironic, I suppose, if that's not too cheap a word to use, moment, because one of the doctors examines Deke Slayton and discovers a lesion on his lung, which would have grounded him from the only flight he was ever to make in space after 10 years of not being on active flight status, would have grounded him and he would never have been able to make that flight had it been discovered beforehand but it was discovered afterwards. And uh, obviously he never flew in space again. Wow, that's an incredible close call there. And I wasn't aware of that that detail in the mission. W- were people aware of that afterwards? I mean, some of it was, you know, in a sense, all of it, although there was actually, you have to kind of read between the lines because, I mean, on the Russian side, it was very much about this is completely successful and everything else. On the American side, Obviously, the situation with the with the gas was something that was talked about because, you know, they're, they're not going to lie about it. But only when you start reading the actual reports, as I have, from the time, do you realise just how lucky an escape they had? I mean, it really was incredibly dangerous. And, you know, had it happened earlier, it's quite possible that all three crew members would have died. I mean, it really was Stafford's very quick thinking action. First thing you do is get an oxygen mask on you. The next thing you do is open the vent once you've flipped the thing around. But there must have been a moment when they were hanging upside down by their straps and one of the crew had already passed out. The other was about to pass out. And you could hardly see for brown gas. And they're sort of essentially underwater in their capsule that it must have looked like curtains. And what a, an ending, what a horrific ending that would have been to a moment that was so full of bright hopes. Absolutely, absolutely. What would you say is the, the legacy of the Apollo-Soyuz mission? That's a great question, Ian. I mean, was it just a, a PR stunt, you know? 
Was it something which was which really meant something at the time? I mean, I think it was something which really meant something at the time. I mean, you, it's very easy for us looking back retrospectively and say, oh, well, you know, it was a cynical stunt. And there were some American newspapers that did actually say that. You know, it's inevitable that they would, you could argue. But I do think that if you put yourself back in that period and you don't know what the future looks like, I think there really was that sense that this was something new. This was this was actually a, a place of possibility. Um, and this was a, a kind of visual and physical and tangible expression of that possibility to come. Of course, ironically, that's not what happened. I mean, there were goodwill tours with cosmonauts and astronauts in both countries. Leonov has a wonderful description about meeting President Ford in the White House. They, these two Soviet cosmonauts became honorary citizens of every city in the United States that they visited. And actually, Frank Sinatra sung to them in Houston as well. Um, but the world was changing again. The curtain was coming back down. The door was locking. That crack in the door was filling. I mean, there are so many of these metaphors one could put together, couldn't one? The reality is that the new president, Jimmy Carter, who came in in 1977, was actually expressly concerned that too many American secrets had been given to the Soviets and very few Soviet secrets had been given to the Americans. That is actually not really the case. And historians have, have really contested that. But that certainly began to swim with the mood of the day. And then the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 effectively killed any further cooperation between the USSR and the Americans in space. And nothing happened for another 20 years until after the demise of the Soviet Union in 1991, when there were a series of joint space shuttle Mir ventures. Mir was the, was the sort of predecessor to the International Space Station which uh, was was flying in space actually through the Soviet era, of the last part of the Soviet era, um, but continued under the Russian Federation. And there were some joint missions there. So it was the first time something came back together. And that tied in with a lot of the optimism that came, political optimism, that was the result of the collapse of the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall in 1989 through the 1990s. Some of that continued with the International Space Station in this century for the last 20 years. There was obviously a Russian module and a Russian and an American module in the International Space Station. And the Russians have indicated they want to keep that module and keep their participation in the International Space Station for a few more years. But the reality is we live in a kind of a Cold War again. And things have really changed in interesting and somewhat alarming ways because the political landscape has changed on the ground and a lot of that distrust is right back where we were and people talk often about a new cold war and so when the americans actually announced the artemis mission which was their new lunar mission to put human beings back on the lunar surface they did make a sort of cursory offer to the Russians to be part of that mission. But to be honest, it was a very small role and the Russians rejected it. And what the Russians have done instead is they're in talks with China, which is the other now really big space player, to build together a lunar research base, a research base on the moon in the future. The truth is that the Americans don't need the Russians any longer. There was a period after the demise of the space shuttle 
where for a period of nine years, the only way for Americans to get to space was via the Soyuz. I saw a Soyuz launch myself in Baikonur in 2019 with a NASA astronaut, Jessica Mayer, in it. And that was how she got to the International Space Station. But now with SpaceX, Crew Dragon, with the Boeing Starliner capsule, there are other ways to get to the International Space Station. So what we're seeing is America starting with capital enterprise to go it alone. And if anything, the Russian space program, which is really not going anywhere any longer and is underfunded and has sort of lost its way and has lost the income it got from America when America had to go there to get its astronauts up to space, Russia is now turning towards the other space power, China. There's a kind of an axis there, but it looks to me like China is going to be the primary partner in any such space venture. So all those hopes of 1975 have sort of gone, really. That wow factor that amazed the world and amazed that global audience of television viewers, all of that has sadly dissipated. And whether there will be future joint space ventures between the United States and America, as the United States and Russia, or indeed between the United States and China, and I mean genuine, proper, collaborative joint space ventures, whatever is talked about, whether any of this will actually happen remains to be seen. I would love to believe that could be the case, but actually in the current political climate, I remain somewhat sceptical. So a bright hope all those years ago, what is it, 46 years ago now, which might have been something, a seed that could have developed into something magnificent, but turned out not to be. Yeah, I I remember the hope with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, the Berlin Wall, you know, the hope that there would be a better world as a result of that. But as we know, it's uh, not necessarily w- worked out. The personal friendships between these men outlived the political differences that might have existed between the nations from which they came. And that's itself very moving because it's a testament you know, to the ultimate power of our own common humanity over the political differences which divide us. And I think in a way, that is the fundamental theme and point of this whole story. Stephen, that was a great account there of the Soyuz Apollo mission. Can you uh, just let listeners know a little bit about your book as well? Yes. So my book, Beyond, was published um, in April this year. Um, It's subtitled The Astonishing Story of the First Human to Leave Our Planet and Journey into Space. It's published by HarperCollins, available on Amazon. It's also available through my website, www.stephenwalkerbeyond.com. And it's really, I hope, a very exciting and dramatic account of the first human being, Yuri Gagarin's incredible flight in space. I mean, the drive to put the first human being in space is a very exciting story. It's a story about the United States competing with the Soviet Union, and it's a race that comes right down to the wire. And the story of how that worked and the personalities involved and the sheer international drama of it, and the glory of what it meant to actually leave the Earth's atmosphere and be the first human being to look down and see our world and all of its beauty. 
is really the story of my book. So if anybody wants to think of a, of a great Christmas present for anybody that's interested in space or the Cold War or any of that period, could I recommend Beyond? <laughs> I think it's a good read. It, it reads, I'm told, a bit like a thriller, even though every word of it, as far as I've tried to make it at least, is it's not a thriller in a sense. It's not a fiction. It's non-fiction, but I hope it's a very exciting read. It, it is a very exciting read, and it definitely gets the Cold War conversations seal of approval and we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes which will show as a link in your podcast app now you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons however i want to especially thank our politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 us dollars a month to keep us on the air they are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Mark Labance, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, Todd Lemieux, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information